been a wonderful Sabbath already. God is good to us, and uh, as we said, we have a growing family, and we're happy to welcome more every week, amen? And uh, we're just so happy that the Holy Spirit is blessing us. It's a testament to your prayers and your dedication to God, but also that He's favoring us right now. His favor is upon us, and we want to be, be thankful for His blessings. I want to talk to you today. We're going to start a series around the events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's April, after all. And today I want to talk to you or share a message with you called Objectifying Jesus. And I'm going to challenge you with a thought. And that thought goes like this. Many of us, thank you, Wave, many of us only believe in Jesus to the point of making him an object. The reason that Jesus ended up dying basically alone on the cross is because his disciples didn't love him. They loved their idea of him. And once their idea of him looked weak, they did not have a use for him anymore. And I wonder if some of us do the same thing sometimes. I wonder if us, we look at Jesus in a way, well, sort of like Popeye's spinach. Remember the old Popeye cartoons? Popeye was just a regular guy until he met a challenge or had a problem and he'd squeeze that can and somehow the spinach always jumped right from the can into his mouth. He had perfect aim every time. But as soon as he ate that spinach, all of a sudden he became like a superhuman, didn't he? Superhuman strength. He could knock down his enemies. He could face any challenge. And I wonder if we sometimes, or we often, make Jesus like Popeye's spinach. We only love him or want him to be part of our lives so much as he can make our lives better, make our story better, rather than just loving Jesus for who he is. I wonder if our faith is a bit like the spider who bit Peter Parker. You know, Peter Parker became Spider-Man. I wonder if we look at Jesus almost like our faith in him makes us supernatural, so we'll never have any problems or we'll be able to overcome every calamity or situation. I wonder if it's a bit like He-Man's sword in Castle Grayskull. Rather than transforming us into what he wants us to be, we apply Christ to our lives so that we can pull out that sword and call upon his power and make us what we think we should be. Yet sometimes it doesn't work out. Our story doesn't go the right way. Have you, have you had that in your life? The story doesn't go quite right. And we have hardship and we have problems and yet... Oh, Jesus is a part of my life. I'm supposed to be able to overcome all odds and overcome every bad situation, aren't I? I mean, Christ is part of my life. I'm supposed to be like He-Man. Whoever told you that this is about your story? This is not about our story. This is about His. We treat Jesus as if He exists to make our story a better victorious one. That he is like our superpower. 
You know, this kind of thinking is what caused Jesus to have to die alone. The disciples believed that the Messiah would come to make Israel great. To rise Israel above the rest of the world, that the Jews would be the crowning achievement of God and they would be a shining example to the entire world. And so when Jesus foretold of his death, that was not compatible. If you think the Messiah exists to make your people better, how could a dying Messiah make any sense? And so as soon as it looked like Jesus couldn't make the disciples' lives any better, they started leaving him one by one. Leaving him to only die with his mother and one friend as he hung and suffered on the cross. He was only as good to them as what he could do for them. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus does wonderful things for us, amen? He does. He forgives us. He saves us. He's going to take us home to glory to be with our loved ones one day. Do you believe that? But friends, what we have to understand is that that is a wonderful byproduct of the story of Jesus. We benefit from where he has been victorious. The Bible was not written to be your story or my story. The Bible is written as the story of the victorious Jesus Christ. This is his story. It's not yours. We even take verses like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I remember as a teenager, I had that poster on my wall. And underneath, it's, it's often related to sports. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even Steph Curry, he has it on his shoes and his sneakers. And so many people have tied it to superhuman feats. And I was in middle school, early high school. And I had this poster, and it was a guy doing a reverse slam, a reverse dunk. And on the bottom of the poster, it said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, you know, in eighth grade, I was all of, you know, five foot two or whatever. And I'm on the basketball court, and I've got my basketball, and I'm going, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That poster said it. I got to believe it. I got to claim that promise. And here I go, and I go up and I try to dunk, and you know, I barely graze the bottom of the net with the ball. Had the promise failed me? Had Christ failed me? You know, that's a silly thing we as kids think about, but we do the same thing as adults. Lord, if I'm a Christian, I should never have problems or trials. I should never have a bill I can't pay. I should never get sick, or I should never have, have a loved one who's dying because I'm a Christian. I'm like He-Man. I've applied Jesus to my life. I should be victorious. The problem is in Philippians 4.13, we don't read the rest of the passage. Because the rest of the passage, Paul says, in all things and in all ways, I have learned to be content. He says, I can be poor. I can be rich. I can be weak. I can be strong. I can be hungry. I can be well-fed. He says, I can do all things. It doesn't say, I will always be fed. I will always be rich. I will always be taken care of. That's not the promise. It says, even if I am weak, or if I am hungry, or if I am suffering, I can do those things because I know this story isn't about me, and Jesus is victorious. 
whatever is happening to me right now does not matter in the grand scheme of the victory of Jesus Christ. So we've taken all of the wonderful things that Jesus does for us because of his great love for us, and we've turned him into an object. An object that we look at and say, yes, Jesus saves me. Yes, Jesus forgives me. Yes, Jesus will take me to heaven. The problem is the, the, the middle of those three sentences is me. Jesus saves me. Jesus forgives me. Jesus will take me to heaven. It's not loving Jesus for who Jesus is. It's loving Jesus for what he, what he does for us. When we, our faith is limited to those things, we don't know him as a person. We don't know him as a God. We only know him for what he can do for us. He's like Popeye's spinach. You know, sometimes our kids leave the faith and we wonder why our kids are leaving the faith. And we think, how should we be teaching our kids? Because, you know, I taught them all those Bible stories. I taught them, you know, David and Goliath. And I told them how wonderful heaven will be. But the problem is, friends, when kids get a little bit older, they compare this world to the world to come. You know what I'm saying here? Yes, I want to slide down the giraffe's neck because that's what we tell our kids we're going to be able to do. I don't even know if that's possible. But when we get to heaven, we tell our kids, you're going to slide down the giraffe's neck. You're going to hug a bear. You're going to lay and take a nap with a lion. I want to do those things, don't you? But here's the thing. That's how we teach heaven to our kids. The problem is what they end up doing is comparing the wonderfulness of heaven to the wonderful things on earth. And they say, here I am on earth now. Heaven can wait. I remember praying this prayer. Jesus, I want you to come, but don't come until I can get married. Jesus, I want you to come, but don't come until I have kids. You know, as the older I got, it never, got, it never changed. Jesus, don't come until I publish my first book. Jesus, don't come until I have, can pastor a big church. Jesus, don't come. You see, what I didn't realize is that I wasn't loving Jesus for who he is. I was loving Jesus for what I thought he could do for me. What we need to teach our children to do is to love Christ for who he is, not simply what he can do for us. That all of our longings and desires that we have in this world, we find in him. That's who he is. We want worldly relationships. We want to find our identity and our sexual identity and our gender identity. Friends, relationships were made so that we can know Christ better. So what you're longing for in a relationship, you actually find in a relationship with Jesus. And until you find that, you can never be happy in an earthly relationship. So many people think they can find their love and peace in finding out who they are through sexuality. You will only be disappointed. Because those relationships were only designed to point us to the true relationship that we find our identity in God. We need to learn to love Jesus for who he is. And as we learn to love Jesus for who he is, do you know what happens? We learn all the wonderful things that happen to us as a result of who Jesus is. You see, we gain from Christ's victory. But until we truly understand Christ's victory, we never truly can appreciate what we've gained in him. I want you to see this from a scriptural standpoint. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. 
Matthew chapter 16. You know, we've made Jesus an object. We've objectified Jesus. Many times we think of objectification as sort of a sexual thing. We make people a sexual object. They're objects, but we made Jesus an object of what he can do for us, and we don't truly know him for who he is sometimes. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. This is an exchange that Jesus had with his disciples. He says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say it's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So this is a significant question. You know that word, Son of Man, that phrase, Son of Man? This is a, a big term among the Jews and the Israelites. It's a big term, and it, it, they get it from Daniel 7. If you want to turn there quickly with me, Daniel chapter 7, and uh, it's a prophecy that old-time Adventists might understand or old-time Christians might remember. Daniel chapter 7, and we are going to look at, let me see here, let me look this up, Daniel 7 and verse 13. So this is the, the vision of the judgment of God, the, the, the judgment of God, and, and a, a person plays a central role in this judgment over the earth of God. Daniel 7 and verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the what? Son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Jews, remember our, our, our sermon from last week, they believed the Messiah would come as a king, as a conqueror, who would lead them in military conquest against the Romans, that they might defeat the Romans, overcome their their adversaries and rise to prominence in the world and the whole world would be in awe of them and they believed that the messiah was the one who would come and so they read in daniel chapter 7 the son of man is going to come and he's going to make all the nations put them under his dominion and they say the son of man is that guy so when jesus calls himself the son of man he's taking on that title i'm the judge i'm the conqueror i'm the king i'm the one so Jesus says, who do people say that I am? The son, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And this is what the disciples say is what's being said about him. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist. That would be a tricky one, a weird one. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You see, and we shared this in a previous message as well, these characters were very important in the story of Israel. Because remember, they didn't read the Old Testament as one story and then another story and then another story and another story and another story. They read the Old Testament as one continuous story. So these major characters who had a major influence were a big deal because these major characters helped them progress in the story to get closer to being the kings and queens of earth. Are you with me? They were significant. So when they say that Jesus is another Elijah, and that's what they're saying, they're not talking about reincarnation. They're talking about, well, you're like another Elijah. The people were saying, you're another one that's important in the progression of this story to get us where we need to be. That's what they're saying. 
You're another one. You're another Elijah. You're another John the Baptist. You're, you're significant. It's important that you're here, but you're not the one. And so this exchange goes on and he has the people that are with him the most, the disciples in verse 15, he says, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, of course, in tr true Peter fashion, the first one to speak up with the most passion, outspoken. The question is, did Peter really understand what that meant? Calls him the son of God, which refers to divinity. It's not just the son of man. He's not just some human Messiah. He's the son of God now. Also refers to his kingship and his authority. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjano, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What Jesus is referring to here is the inspiration of all believers. The whole, the whole rest of the Jewish world is identifying Jesus as one of the, the, the major players in their story. Peter says, no, you're not just one of the players. You are the player. You are the one to get us to where God promised us. Are you with me? You're the one. And, and Jesus says, it's only inspiration that has revealed this to you because everybody else thinks I'm Elijah or thinks I'm John the Baptist or thinks I'm just Jeremiah. But God has revealed to you that I'm the son of God. And this rock that the church is being built on is the inspiration of all believers, the priesthood of all believers, so that God will come into people that believe in him and teach us truth and lead us on to things like discovering that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? There's inspiration. There's the indwelling uh, Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds to teach us truth. The problem is even Peter did not understand what he was saying. Ah. <sighs> Oh, Peter. Oh, everybody. It's the, it's the entire disciples. It's even us. We tear, carry on this same mindset. Who do you say that I am? You're the son of God. Let's jump to verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be what? Killed and on the third day be raised. Oh, Peter. <laughs> Here's how we know Peter didn't know what he was talking about. He, he, God had revealed to him that God, Jesus was the Son of God. He was the Christ. But he didn't even know what that meant. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Remember what it said in Daniel? Daniel said he will have an everlasting kingdom and it shall not end. Well, if he's the Christ... If he's the son of God, if he's the one that's promised, he can't die. Because a crucified Messiah is no good to us. A dead Messiah can't make our story better. So Peter, Peter has just called him the son of God. And now he's rebuking the son of God. How many of us in our lives have called Jesus the Son of God, our Savior, and then when things don't work out for us, 
we rebuke him. Lord, I'm suffering. How could you let this happen? Lord, I can't pay that bill. Who do you think you are? And so it goes on. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. So there's some people think that, <laughs> there's some people that think that in the, those previous verses, Jesus was establishing Peter as the first pope. But like five verses later, he's calling Peter Satan. That doesn't quite line up for me. You see, he'd been listening. The reason he calls him Satan is because he's been listening to the adversary. Think about what's happening. Why does he call Peter Satan? Think about what's happening. Peter is tempting Jesus with the same temptations that the devil tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. Think about this. The Son of Man was to be the Messiah, the King of the world, and to rule for all nations. What did, the, what did, what did Satan tempt Jesus with in the wilderness? Aren't you the Son of God? Throw yourself down from here. What Peter is saying to Jesus is, you're the Son of God. You don't have to die. Find pride in who you are. Don't follow God's will. Do your own thing. Another temptation in the wilderness was when, when Satan said to Jesus, I'll give you all this. And you don't have to go to the cross. I'll give it to you. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give it to you. It's yours. Could Jesus have done that? Yes or no? He sure could have. He could have ruled the world without dying. Could have. So these, when, when Peter goes to Jesus and he says, look, you don't have to die, that same temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness with Satan is coming through Peter. And why is Peter saying this to Jesus? Because the dead Messiah doesn't fit Peter's idea of the Messiah. Are you with me? Peter's idea of the Messiah meant this Messiah exists to lift me up. To raise me up to prominence. You want another example? When they're in the upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus stoops down and he shows them what the kingdom of heaven is all about. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, takes out his coat, gets down on his knee, and washes the disciples' feet. And immediately after that, they have an argument about who's the greatest. He displayed to them what the kingdom of heaven was all about. And immediately after, they start arguing about who is the greatest because they still think that Jesus' mission and ministry is to raise up the people of Israel to be kings and queens. And Peter's going, you know, I'm going to be the first in his kingdom. No, and James says, no, what are you kidding? I'm his brother. Why would he make you first? I'm going to be first. Judas says, you know, nobody's more obedient than me and understands his mission any better than me. Of course, it's going to be me. They all think Jesus exists to make their story better. Just like little Dusty out there on the basketball court. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We think it's about us. The story isn't about us. 
The story's about Him and what He has done and what He has conquered on our behalf. So we go back to Matthew chapter 16. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind in the things of God, but on the things of men. Each time Jesus told them that he was going to suffer and die, they couldn't understand it. If you think about that, what's not to understand? (laughs) I mean, honestly, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. What's so confusing if he says to them, you know, I'm going to die? You know what was confusing? It didn't fit their narrative. That's the confusing part. It's not confusing when somebody foretells their death. I mean, how hard is that to understand? I'm going to die. Okay. That's not confusing. What was confusing is that it did not fit their idea of who he should be for them on their behalf. Because a dead Messiah can do nothing for them. So, we fast forward to the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus dies on a cross with two people by his side. Two. All these disciples, all these people he has healed, everyone he's shown love to, everyone he's revealed himself to, everyone who he has convicted that he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah, and there's only two people left, his mama and his best friend John. That's it. Where are the rest? It starts when he's captured. You see, when he's arrested, Peter draws up a sword and he's going to fight. Why is he going to fight? Is he going to fight because he he knows that Jesus' way to the throne is through the cross? Or is he fighting because he thinks, now's the time. Gather your arms. It's time to battle. Israel's going to rise to prominence and we are going to be victorious because Jesus is sure to rise. And Jesus heals the man by putting his ear back on that Peter cut off. Jesus allows himself to go into captivity by being arrested. Can you imagine what's happening in the minds of these disciples? How can this be? How can the Messiah allow himself to be arrested? This was the whole reason that Judas betrayed him. Judas thought by betraying Jesus, it would force Jesus to rise up and lead the army. So Jesus be, or Judas betrays Jesus, gives him up to try to force Jesus' hand. They didn't love Jesus for who he was. They loved the idea of who they thought he could be on their behalf. And so as the hours pass and Jesus stays in captivity and stays in prison, and as he's beaten and as he's flogged, and then the weaker he looks, the more convinced these disciples go, he can't do anything for me anymore. So while he is in his moments of agony, struggling for every breath, struggling to breathe through the pain of the nails in his hands and in his feet and on his forehead, struggling for life, It reveals who his true friends were and who truly loved him. Two out of all of those followers. All the rest left him because they didn't love him. 
They loved the idea of what he could do for them. And when that was gone, they turned tail and ran away from him and betrayed him. Friends, I fear that that's my faith sometimes. Is it your faith sometimes? When it seems like God can't do anything for you, there goes our faith. When it seems like our passions or desires are too much to overcome or our, our, our circumstances are too difficult, out, away goes our faith, away goes our relationship with the Lord. Friends, that tells us that our faith isn't deep enough in our relationship with Christ. Because no matter how hard times get and how difficult and trying the times are, the story of Jesus, despite our circumstances, still is true. Do you believe that today? Is the truth of the gospel only as true as your life circumstances and how you feel in the moment? We have to ask ourselves that on a regular basis. Is the truth of the gospel only relative to how you feel at the moment? Or how you feel you're being taken care of at the moment? So the story in Matthew chapter 16 finishes up this way. Verse 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Do you see that? Jesus is saying right there, Peter, if you want to follow me, you have to realize this is not about your story. This is not about you. In fact, the cross that we bear as Christians, some people think, oh, it's this harsh obedience that we have to carry around. It's this having no fun because we're Christians. That's not the gospel I read. Is it yours? The cross that we bear as Christians is simply denying self. In other words, it's realizing that this is not about us. It's about Jesus. Do we benefit from his victory? Absolutely, 100%. Yes, but this life is not about us. It's about him. This story is about him. The cross that we bear is denying ourselves denying our story for the sake of his. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Peter, disciples, you and me, you think this life is about you and your story? In, in essence, it's adding Christ to my story to make my existence better. The problem is, Jesus wants to blow up our entire existence. The gospel is not about making this life better. It's about giving us an entirely new one. The gospel is not about making the old creation better. It's about a new creation. Do you believe that? It's not just a better old creation. It's an entirely new creation. And the only way we can experience that new creation is by denying our old self and becoming a new creature in Christ. People say, I find myself by living out my urges and my passions. And Jesus is saying, look, this isn't about making your old self feel better. This is about being a new creation in Jesus. New life. 
Resurrection. That's what baptism is about. We die and are raised to new life in Christ. Peter just wanted to put bows and daisies and flowers on his old life. That old Peter. But when he fully understood the gospel, he realized the old Peter's gone. And now there's a new one. The old world will pass away one day and there will be a new one. Do you believe that? Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords of the new creation. The new you, the new me, the new world. That's what this gospel is all about. So when we think that Jesus only exists to make our old life better, we don't believe the gospel. We have to acknowledge that sometimes we will suffer in this world because we are no longer made for this world. Do you believe that today? You and I are no longer made for this world. We are being transformed for the new one. And we may suffer for a time here, but that does not take away what Jesus has done and is continuing to do in making this creation new. We may not understand our circumstances at the moment. But that doesn't make the victory of Christ any less true. He goes on in verse Matthew 16. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man, there it is again, the judge, the conqueror, the king, the son of man is going to come with his angels in glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming into his kingdom. He's talking about his transfiguration there. But what, he's, what we have to recognize, friends, do you know where the earthly throne of Jesus was? You know where we find the earthly throne of Jesus? It's on the cross. His cross was also his throne. Because on his throne is the place where he gained the victory over this world. Over my sin and yours. And he became the son of man, the judge, the king, the Messiah, the king of kings and lord of lords. The conquering one who takes over. Do you believe he's taking over? He is taking over and he's making all things new. And he says, I will come in power and great glory. He's the king. Do you believe it today? And he's coming as the king. The king deserves to be obeyed. The king deserves to be loved. And here's the thing. He's not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis says. I'm okay with being afraid of God. Are you? You know why I'm okay with being afraid of God? Because I know how good he is. I know how good he is because I know what he's done for me. And by knowing what he's done for me, I can give him full authority, full glory, trust in what he has done as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and know that it's true. Even though I may be suffering at the moment, I can trust in his victory. He's not a tame lion. He's still a lion and he's the king and he's the conqueror and he's the Messiah and he's the one who's going to put away sin and suffering and sadness and injustice and all this hatefulness that we find in this world. He's coming as the king to make all things new. Do you want to be in his kingdom? Yes. 
That's what this whole thing is about. He's not some wimpy Jesus. Oh, you need money for your electric bill? Here you go. That's what we reduce him to. Oh, Peter. You know, Peter, you want to rise to be first in my kingdom? What can I do for you to make you first in my... That's the Jesus we make him out to be. He's not some wimpy doormat Jesus. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the creator of the universe. He speaks and it's done. That's Jesus. He doesn't exist simply to serve us, even though his victory makes us new and forgives us and brings us together in community. There's so many things that we benefit from, from his victory, but it's his victory. It's his and his alone. So my friends, I fear that in my life, and, and I wonder for your life, do you make an object of Jesus sometimes? How is your faith when times get tough? Does Jesus all of a sudden seem like a wimp? Is the spinach all of a sudden not worth eating when your life isn't going all that well? What is your view of your current situation? Are you frustrated with God because you think you should have more attention or more admiration? You think he's not at work in your life because you expect more respect? Do you think you deserve better treatment because of how obediently you've lived your life? When you suffer, has the gospel all of a sudden become obsolete? Don't tell me no. Because this is what we all do at different times in our lives. Or is there a deeper story? One that isn't primarily about you, but one that we benefit from infinitely. That's the beauty of it. The story isn't about us, but oh, look at all of the things that we benefit because of Christ's victory. Because of what he's done. Is there a stronger truth deeper than your current circumstances? Is there someone who deserves all the credit and praise even if we don't get any? That's how you know your faith is going deeper. That's how you know that you love Jesus just because of who Jesus is. And that's the bottom line of our message today, friends. We can't be in love with Jesus just simply for what we think he can do for us. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about seeing Jesus for all that he is. Seeing that he is powerful and glorious and righteous and holy. Worthy to be feared. But so good that we love him like a brother and like a father and like a savior. Realizing that we don't even understand our own story. And why are we even worried about this creation anyway? Because his story is about a new creation where he is king of kings and lord of lords. Do you want to be part of that new creation? I do. This old life is passing away. A new one is coming, is already here and is coming. He's coming very soon. Let's not make our faith superficial and only make it about what Jesus can do for us. 
Because when it seems like He's not doing something for us, our faith will fail. But if we recognize that there is a truth deeper, deeper still than our current circumstances, there is a story that's not about us where our God is King of kings and Lord of lords. It doesn't matter what happens to us now because He's all about a new creation. You want to be part of that new creation today? Would you stand as we sing our closing song?